in the course of our practice we have to regularly come back to our initial inspiration have to return to those recollections, contemplations, insights that maybe brought us to practice the Dhamma, to have an interest in meditation, reading, listening to the Buddhist teachings. was until our faith and our wisdom is established in our minds and becomes unwavering, unshakable. And obviously we experience periods of ups and downs where we have more inspiration and therefore more energy to practice and then we have periods where things go flat maybe even periods where we feel like giving up. <coughs> Our teachers from the Buddha downwards, they've all uh, reminded us that the nature of the world is anicca dukkha anatta. Nietzsche means changing. Another way they describe it, if it's something that changes, or it's perishable. It doesn't last. Whether it's Rupa Dhamma or Nama Dhamma, it's perishable. You know, we buy things nowadays, or lay people buy things, and they always have a sell-by date on, and or if it's something more substantial, they have guarantees and warranties. There's often time limits put on the things of this world. It just points to the fact everything is perishable. It doesn't last. And in that sense, they're we say they're defective, they're dukkha. Dukkha means things of this world are defective. Nobody likes getting defective products, but that's the nature of the world. And they're without substance or essence. They're anatta. For many, this is the beginning of the practice, is hearing these teachings, just pointing out these truths, either reminding us or maybe even pointing out for the first time. Never looked at it in that way before. Maybe these teachings resonate with just a sense of dissatisfaction. Different experiences we've had <coughs> may 
seekers realize that it's hard to find any kind of permanent lasting happiness or satisfaction in the world. So we start looking and using these teachings, thinking about it, looking, observing. Maybe the more you look at first, the more disappointing it is. So you realize everything is perishable, defective, without substance. But for us, that's also led us to search for something that is non-perishable, that is more satisfying, self-sufficient, something that has real meaning. That's brought us to practice the Dhamma. So for many of us, these insights into Anicca Dukkha Anatta lead on to the arising of that seeking, searching, and then coming in contact with the Buddhist teachings gives rise to some faith and confidence that there is a, a way to experience something better, to get beyond this feeling of lacking or dissatisfaction, discontent that we've noticed in ourselves. That leads us to practice. Sometimes the results of the practice are very quick. Just learning to meditate a bit, (coughs) calming the mind down already. For many people that's a great step forward. Some people just need to hear the teachings already. Great joy and relief arises. Others need to practice a bit, experience some peace from meditation. The mind calming down and then they feel something is better than before. But obviously we need to keep building on that. We need to keep reflecting on the Dhamma, listening to Dhamma and then keep practicing in this process is being reinforced the looking at the world seeing the dukkha and then seeking the way out gets reinforced so we get stronger inspiration and motivation to practice and then more joy arises from that and from that we get the wirya the energy to keep practicing. Viriyena Dukkha Machedi. It's through effort and persistent effort that we can overcome and transcend Dukkha. They say when hearing the Dhamma and there's that awareness that uh, maybe there is a way out of suffering. Human beings can do this. There is a way to free the mind from suffering. That sort of happiness that arises, this pity and pamoja, the joy, the happiness, the rapture that arises. This is something very, very valuable to the mind. 
very satisfying. It's just like somebody who's been trapped in a prison of some sort, realizing that there is an escape, a chance for liberation. Normally in the world we spend our time just trying to make the prison better, make it more comfortable. So we're always furnishing our prison cell with more things, more pleasures. But as they say, even if the prison cell is you know, completely encrusted with jewels and made out of solid gold, it's still a cell, it's still, you're still trapped. But the Buddhist path takes us beyond that, takes us out of the cell even if it means leave, leaving behind the gold and the jewels. <clears throat> and it's that faith that arises that gives us the energy to want to want to practice and keep practicing. So the sages of old compared faith to like a gem, a gemstone. They're the Bodhisattva in previous lives, the Buddha in previous lives, sometimes he was a, what they call a universal monarch, an all-conquering monarch. They say to have that, they have to have their special gemstone. Maybe it's a, an, just a picture, an image of their barami that gives them the, the skills and the, the good causes and conditions to become a, a universal or world-conquering emperor or king. They say somebody with faith, it's like they have their own gemstone, just the same as that universal emperor. And obviously if that faith becomes established, so it's unshakable, can't be toppled by wrong views or difficult experiences or so on, then that gem is a real gem. It stays in the mind. And it's a continuous generation. It's continually gener generating you know, brightness and energy that leads to the effort in the practice. We don't give up even if the going is tough or there's obstacles and so on. So often we have to, either we go back to listening to the Dhamma, reflecting on it, or recollecting our own past experiences in the Dhamma. It can be very valuable to re-establish faith and some of that joy and the radiance that comes as faith arises. The kind of faith that leads on to practice and the kind of joy and the happiness you know, compared to a man walking in the desert or lost in the desert, suffering from not having water, dehydrated, tired, starting to get anxious, worried that they might end up just dying of dehydration in the desert. And they meet someone who says, oh, but over the hill there's a, an oasis, a nice lake full of clear water. 
so they're willing to march on a bit further and they get and they see the water. So not only just hearing the, that there is water, they actually see the water and then they taste the water and quench their thirst. And this is like the, the hearing of the Dhamma and the joy that arises and the pity, the rapture and the sukha that arises from hearing and then practicing Dhamma. Just like when we meditate, the mind starts to calm down. So another way faith arises is sometimes just by doing it, doing the practice. Setting aside doubts, laziness, lethargy, putting aside distraction and just doing it. Being willing to commit to the practice and then through the effort and applying the teachings, applying the meditation techniques then some of the hindrances start to fade away and we experience our own peace, however temporary, that also will make our faith firmer and stronger. They say the faith that comes from hearing the Dhamma, it's a special kind of faith, different from just a faith in more worldly things, because it has the ability to set in motion the process for dispelling the five hindrances from the mind. It can be that powerful, the effect of joy and radiance arising when we hear the good Dhamma, reflect on it, contemplate it. So sometimes just listening to a Dhamma talk, your mind can go straight into samadhi. All the hindrances drop away. Or remembering a teacher or a teaching or an experience. And in a flash the uh, hindrances drop away. Although they may return, it's, it's a very important experience because it gives you the confidence that it can be done and the mind can go through the hindrances. The hindrances themselves, as we know, they're the <coughs> like the thieves that take away our peace of mind, our happiness. So we have no choice but to keep facing up to them and uh, using the techniques of meditation to deal with them of samatha and vipassana. As Ajahn Chah always pointed out, even though on the page of the book we have samatha and the 40 techniques of samatha and then on the other page vipassana, the contemplation of anicca dukkha anatta and the arising of the insights. In practice it's these two qualities or two aspects working together and they're inseparable. And it's particularly the hindrances that we're working with, just undermining the power over their mind to cover the mind, to cover the brightness, the purity of the mind <clears throat> that stops wisdom arising. I think one way the Buddha referred to the hindrances as the, 
the weakness of wisdom. They weaken our wisdom. Obviously, if you're caught up in sense pleasures, sensual indulgence, you're not seeing an Icha Dukkha Anatta. There's no wisdom or not much wisdom there. If you're caught up into ill will, Hayabhata, there's no wisdom. If you're caught into lethargy, sloth and torpor, there's no wisdom or not much wisdom. Anxiety, restlessness, sceptical doubt, all the hindrances take away our wisdom, take away the brightness of the mind and obviously obstruct the Dhamma. That in itself, say, for one who has heard the Dhamma and aspires to liberation, it should be enough motivation to say, I don't want these hindrances taking over the mind. So it leads on to the striving, the wiriya, to want to overcome them so that the mind can develop the wisdom, the clear seeing of the way things are. Sometimes we use wisdom to counter the hindrances because they all have their opposite, their dhammas that are rival and able to subdue them. With sensual desire we have to contemplate an impermanence and the unattractive qualities of whatever the mind is dwelling on, obsessed with to pull it away from the attractive features of whatever that object is. Whether it's a physical form, a pleasurable experience, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. You have to use that kind of, have that effort and use wisdom in that way. Just pull the mind back to see the impermanence or see the unattractive or the repulsive side of whatever we're stuck in. With ill will we have to pull the mind back from that, to dwell on goodwill, patience, tolerance, compassion, sympathetic or appreciative joy, equanimity. Sometimes it's as quick as that, you just turn the mind away to another object and the hindrance drops. Sloth and torpor is come about through dwelling on the, a mood of sloth and torpor, getting stuck into the darkness of it, the comfort of it, the blankness of it, overcome by putting the mind on a mood that arouses energy, just thinking at that moment, at that time, how to arouse energy. So often we just get up, change posture, have a wash and so on as a way to get out of lethargy. Restlessness, anxiety, regret, subdued by just peaceful meditation objects, like the breath, or any object that helps you to calm down. Skeptical doubt by the Dhamma, hearing more Dhamma, contemplating the Dhamma, carefully thinking about the Dhamma that you've heard and learned, applying it to help subdue doubt. Or ultimately just using a meditation object might subdue all the hindrances in one go. 
putting your attention on the breath, on the body. It's only by repeatedly practicing in this way, facing the hindrances, working with them, we get more skilled at getting through them than the experience of say, pity and sukha, the, the happiness of the mind deepens enough and steadies, calms down enough, becomes steady enough that our wisdom can deepen. We use wisdom to overcome the hindrances but also the deeper wisdoms, the insight into say emptiness, not self. So our teachers say, when you practice, first of all, you're just practicing to understand what is a wholesome mind state leading to and conducive to happiness, and what is an unwholesome mind state leading to suffering. You're recognizing them, and you start to abandon the unwholesome, develop the wholesome. But there still might be this sense of self identifying with, grasping with those wholesome mind states that we develop. The only way to undermine that or see through that is to contemplate anicca dukkha anatta. So even with that sense of peace and the joy, the happiness that arises from the meditation, we still have to take that up for contemplation. Really look for any sense of self that's forming in that. Sometimes it's the the pity that arises, the rapture, the joy. You can have a sense of this is me or feel special at that time. Or it can prompt us to want to go and do other things, to convert others to Buddhism or tell everyone how good it is and so on. So we still have to carry on and contemplate all the sukha the contentedness can lead to a kind of dullness where you're just not wishing to contemplate you, you take that happiness as good enough sometimes as the hindrances fade a bit we get more happiness the mind gets caught into the view that this is the way out of the world the suffering of the world and we just want to keep pursuing that if you pursue that to its limit, then you're really just escaping the world by, de by developing you know, ever more refined states of samadhi. But it's just like you know going to the very edge of the world, but still caught within the confines of that cage or that prison cell. It's the limitations of, say, samadhi and samatha the joy, the peace, although it's a very essential part of the practice, it can still be that basis for attachment, clinging. So Ajahn Chah said we always have to practice with our eyes open, meaning even when we develop states of samadhi and go beyond the hindrances, we have to come back and contemplate the world as it is with our eyes open. You can't just escape the world through samadhi. It doesn't work. If we go off into the cave and 
get very peaceful on retreat, you still have to come back to the world, meet people, eat, be involved with the world, but that's where you contemplate. It's the only way we can really uproot the causes of suffering is to contemplate, turning our mindfulness to develop mindfulness of anicca, dukkha anatta, of the perishable nature of body and mind, rupa dhamma, nama dhamma, and their defective nature the limitations of it, the lack of substance, lack of essence, lack of self in these things. Keep coming back to face up to that, look at that with eyes wide open. The natural effect on the mind is the mind starts to sense of having, maybe seeing the previously we were always deluded by the world, tricked or confused by the world, but now actually even not fishermen, fishing in the old way with the hands under the water trying to grab the fish and they thought they got a fish, pull it up and realize they got a snake. So that sense of immediately wanting to let go, because it's not what you thought it was. It's even dangerous. It's an immediate sense of sort of revulsion or repulsion. I don't want this. Drop it. The mind contemplates anicca dukkha anatta in the world, sees it. It's nothing to be clinged to. The mind gets weary. The mind seeks to be liberated from that, to get out of the prison cell, the cage. That can only come by clearly seeing the world from above. bored with it, fed up with clinging on to something that doesn't last, doesn't provide happiness. But the sense of release is much more satisfying, much more complete for the mind, brighter, happier, better, and long-lasting, permanent. And emancipation and liberation leads on to the the mind focusing on the deathless element, amatadatu. That which doesn't die, though, isn't born, isn't doesn't die, doesn't arise, doesn't cease. Non-perishable, not defective. What we're practicing is definitely a, a way of training, a system of training that the Buddha and our teachers, Ajahn Chah and all our other teachers have put to the test and they've confirmed it works. Now we have to follow in their footsteps, take their words, their encouragement, put it to the test for ourselves keep having to come back just to the basic dhammas that inspired us to practice the reflections, the insights, keep building on them, keep arousing the energy, 
Keep putting effort into the sitting, the walking, the practice. Calming the mind, reflecting on the three characteristics. And little by little we're tasting some of that freedom that they talk about. Anyway, we have some time left, we can carry on practicing. <laughs> 